Wumajika. My name is Larry Walsh and I'm an elder of the Tunnarong people and an elder of the Kulin Nations. And we at Footscray Arts Centre, we acknowledge we are on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri, Warrawung people and the Boomerang people. And we pay our respects to their ancestors and we also pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And through them, we also pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that live in the western suburbs. We also pay our respects to all elders throughout the various communities that live in the western suburbs. Tôi chân thành cảm ơn người Wurundjeri và người Boon của đất nước Kulin và người Karikul của đất nước Irora trên hai nơi chính mà chúng tôi làm tác phẩm này. Ở trên đất này mà mảnh đất của người ta mà bị người khác lấy đi, chúng tôi đang đứng, sống, làm việc và hôm nay chúng tôi đến từ nơi khác để chia sẻ những câu chuyện này. Welcome to FCAC Radio, a podcast series produced by Footscray Community Art Center, platforming artists, creatives and stories outside of the mainstream. Welcome to episode one of season two of FCAC Radio. My name is Daniel Santangeli and I'm the artistic director here at Footscray Community Arts Centre. FCAC Radio was born out of an extended lockdown last year here in Melbourne and FCAC, which is normally a place for artists to come and make work, to connect with audiences, was closed for the first and longest time that it ever has been in its 47-year history. So last year we wanted to find a way to keep our artists connected with community and so the staff at FCAC came up with the idea of doing a podcast series, FCAC Radio. You can hear season one wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and it's an amazing collection of interviews with artists who have created work at the centre or are connected to the West in some way. So lockdown is over, but FCAC Radio is not. I'm absolutely thrilled that FCAC Radio Season 2 is here. With FCAC Radio, each episode is hosted by a different member of the FCAC team, and you'll hear excerpts of artists' work in each episode too. The big difference between this season and the last season is that FCAC has reopened. So each artist will be interviewing uh, you can actually come to the centre and see their work here at Footscray Community Arts Centre. Let's get to today's episode where we'll be joined by visual artists Victoria Pham and James Nguyen. Before we introduce those artists, I'd like to introduce Tamsin Hopkinson, who is the curator of Connect, which will be featuring Victoria Pham and James Nguyen here at FCAC over January and then back again in May for Connect Part 2. Tamsin Hopkinson is an incredible curator and it will also be the co-host for today's episode. Tamsin, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Can you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourself and also about Connect Part 1 and Part 2? So my name's Tamsin Hopkinson. I'm a Māori woman from Aotearoa in New Zealand. I'm from the east coast of the North Island, so my tribes are Ngāti Kangunu and Ngāti Pahuwera. I work as an artist and a curator. I'm also a teacher and producer. And I'm, I guess I'm really excited to work with you, Daniel, and work at Footscray Community Arts Centre because I'm interested in the intersection between contemporary art and community. 
We did talk a lot about splitting the show into two parts. So with the first part, I guess I was interested in, because we were in lockdown, I was interested in works that were already being made, but ways we could get a contemporary art audience to, I guess, connect with community at FCIC. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to James and Victoria today. Um, And in the second part of Connect, we have four other artists and then they will all open together, so the six artists together. So we have two here. So it'll be Victoria Pham, James Newen and Raffaella McDonald. Yeah, so they'll both be presenting here as part of Connect, uh, both of those works, so, and then as part of FCAC Subba, which is a kind of a month-long season of works that we're presenting here now that we are reopened after temporarily being closed during lockdown. So let's join Victoria and James into the call. Thank you so much for joining us today, James and Victoria. Um, I was wondering, James, if you would like to kick off by introducing yourself and talk about where you are. Thanks for um, having us on. So my name's James Newen and um, I'm a Melbourne-based artist. I've just moved to Melbourne for a year or so. And um, however, coming back to visit my parents for um, the holiday period, I'm back in lockdown in Sydney. Um, yeah, so it's kind of this strange thing where we've developed this uh, project um, kind of um, together live, me and Victoria, but now like increasingly it's getting more and more online. But yeah, I guess lots of my practice um, spans digital kind of like um, collaborations with people and film and um, all different types of things. But mainly I think what I'm interested in are the conversations that come out of um, these interactions with my peers and um, the communities around me. Awesome. Thanks, James. And um, Victoria, if you wanted to introduce yourself too. Yeah. Thanks again for having us on. It's such a joy. And I think James has just reiterated the oddness of our partnership or collaboration (laughs) it is increasingly going online because i am also stuck in lockdown but on the other side of the world um all the way in the uk at the moment um so it's a bit of an interesting experience that james and i have originally built this project uh when we were together in one space in sydney and then a whole year apart uh in two different countries and now also apart but it's the exhibition's kind of first physical physical being or introduction to an audience. Uh, in terms of my practice, I'm a, a little bit different from James. I'm more on the music and sound side of things. Uh, I'm originally a composer and I love working with tech and sound design. And I'm also an archaeologist, uh, which has allowed me to explore very interesting things. And in particular, this project is kind of the, I don't know what word to use, but central reflection of my practice in that it's allowed me to investigate something that is an artifact, which is more of my archaeological training, but it's also a musical instrument, which is brought in all the more creative side of my practice, which is about sound design and recordings and music and using an object to engage communities past, present, and hopefully think about different ways that we can engage with objects for the communities around us and for the future. 
For those listening, you might have already worked out that Victoria and James are joining us from not in the same place that Tamsin and I are. So James is in Sydney and uh, Victoria is in uh, Cambridge in the UK. Uh, So the sound quality might not be super crisp all the time, but thank you to the wonders of Zoom that we're able to make this possible. So at the heart of this work is the Dongsan drum. Can you tell us a little bit about the drum itself and what... It's like what it, what its purpose is and what it sort of looks like and how it was kind of originally used. Yeah, so I, I guess like this is both an ancient archaeological instrument, but also an instrument that's still been played by um, minority communities in Vietnam and southern China and also um, in other parts of Southeast Asia. So. I guess with any objects, it's um, use and its cultural um, import is kind of like quite varied. And from our research, um, it ranges from kind of like these harvest festivals and symbols of kind of like calling the rains um, and fertility, but also there's a lot of um, history that we discovered um with the drum being used as kind of like an instrument of warfare and communication between the different tribes in Vietnam. Um, I think maybe Victoria might be um, better at describing it. Ask, ask the archaeologist. Yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, as for the drum itself, uh, the one that we have, we're not entirely sure of its exact age. When we did all this research and looking at all these other collections around the world, predominantly collections in America and collections in France, uh, these particular Dongsan drums, and they are called so because in 1924, the village in which they were first or rediscovered uh, was called Dongsan. They range between the ages of 3000 BC to about 500 BC, so solidly uh, in the Bronze Age of Southeast Asia. And they're made entirely of bronze. So there is no other material that they're constructed from. And for anyone at home who's listening, trying to visualize how big they are, they can range from anything to about, I could say, 40 centimeters in diameter, which is approximately the drum that we've been working with, and in height, about, about the same, about 40 to 50 centimeters. And there are a few specimens in Vietnam that are almost one to 1.5 meters uh, across in diameter. So they can be huge. So when James says they can be used for harvest festivals, uh, we, from the research, have probably deduced that they're likely to be the slightly smaller to medium-sized drums, like the one that we have. Uh, and they have been deduced to be used for the terrain. But the much bigger ones, uh, because they ring so loudly and you can likely hear them across valleys for kilometres, they're more likely to be the ones that we believe will be used for calling tribes together or or some sort of alarm or fortification system. And so what drew you to the drum? And how did you come across this particular drum as well? Yeah, so I, I guess like um, both Victoria and I grew up as part of the Vietnamese diaspora um, and also kind of like being immersed in cultures that are outside of Vietnam. So for me, my first encounter was of the drum was actually at the Art Gallery of New South Wales on the display and I'm like, oh, we have these drums. But then when I came home and talked to my parents about it, they're like, "Uh, we've always talked to you about these drums. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly I never paid any attention. (laughs) Yeah, so so it's kind of like this weird thing where, you know, like your your family and 
you know, you're immersed in cultural knowledge and you don't really are aware or see it as visible until an institution that, you know, you're raised in and educates you tells you that uh, there's a significance in this object. And you're like, ah, okay, then that must be significant because the museum told me that it's significant um, as opposed to it's significant because your parents told you it was significant. Um, Yeah, and and so I guess like... um, from there, I started to see more of them. And um, when I was in New York, like it was actually, I took my parents to the Met and it was actually the first time that my mum had seen like the drum. And so our experience of the drum was one of um, like dispersal. Like it, like it, it wasn't like, um, you know, this, this authentic idea of, you know, like finding an object within its cultural context or anything like that. Our, our experience was always, one, you know, linked to the spread of the diaspora, you know, like in Australia, in museums in America, you know, part of kind of like the mob of tourists that go to see um, cultural objects. And, you know, you somehow accidentally stumble on your own cultural objects. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I, I guess Victoria has kind of like quite a similar story. Almost exactly the same as yours, which is really funny. I grew up with my mum telling me this story or this mythology about this drum that was this huge symbol in Vietnamese history, ancient history. Uh, and I think she even collected books, uh, like really old, I say old, maybe texts from the 50s <laughs> about uh, like early Vietnamese academics with pictures and drawings of these old instruments. And I thought, okay, out of sight, out of mind. I didn't really think about it. And then when I was 17, I volunteered to work in the Department of Anthropology in the Australian Museum because they were looking for young volunteers. And then they took me, I think, on my second time or second shift there into the back room where they keep all these artifacts from around the world that they had collected or bought uh, since they opened in the late 1800s. And there was a Dongsen drum just sitting in a case at the back. Um, actually, if you go to the museum now, it's now on display. But that was the first time I saw it kind of hidden away. And it didn't really click immediately what it was until I asked my supervisor what it was and I realized, ah, this is a thing that my mom had told me about. And she actually never got to see that drum because it's only recently been taken out of its case for the public to access. So the first drum she actually ever saw was the one that we ended up working with in our project. Um, so it was really amazing to see her talk about this mythology and then suddenly that exact object she had grown up being told about was in our house about a year after I met James. And um, so basically, to answer how we got our hands on this drum, <laughs> when we thought, uh, first thought about working with uh, this idea of these instruments, particularly the Dongson drum, we had no idea how to get access to it. And James mentioned the idea of institutions, and we'd both interacted with the drum somewhere before, both in Sydney, one at the Australian Museum, and then James at the Archive New South Wales. So we went to those institutions and thought this would be how we'd get access to it. But I think, as we all know, if you want to actually play an artifact, one that's as old as this, there's no way an institution or a university or a gallery or a museum is going to give you permission to touch an instrument like that and work with it that intimately. Um, and James, I think you called it once like smashing the glass cabinet and trying to find a way to resound these instruments and bring them to life. So James actually found uh, an auction, like a private auction, at a collection house down in Melbourne and it happened to have a Dongsen drum 
on the listing and then we bought it. So that's how we have this drum. Yeah, so like that, that idea of kind of like smashing the museum case is kind of like a story where, you know, like it's, it's a story of kind of like administrative negotiation where, you know, you go into museums, you know, you, you get all these introductions, you, you, you look at the instrument and then you have to start writing protocols about how to even touch an object. Um, yeah, and, and so it's, it, you know, like colonization happened over a long and, you know, like really organized period of time. And so kind of like, I guess, to access these instruments and decolonize it, even in contemporary times, it demands a level of kind of like persistence and persevering and kind of like engaging with, you know, the, the institutions of colonization. And, and so that's our long game. But our short game um, to smash the glass was to actually acquire it ourselves. And what's really interesting about this conversation is that, like, you know, um, a lot of these instruments were, were lost um, during kind of like, you know, like um, grey market or, you know, like um, illegal forms of trade. And, and a lot of these came from, you know, during periods of war and disruption when museums couldn't look after their their artifacts. And so a lot of these got stolen, went into like um, dodgy markets. And then from these markets, they ended up in auction houses and auction houses ended up doing kind of like these economic and cultural cleansing of kind of like um, these artifacts and then museums collect them. And, and so like it's, it's this whole process of kind of... Um, cultural and economic cleansing that happens. And the ironic thing is that now that Southeast Asia and, and China and a lot of emerging economies are growing in dominance, like they're forced to kind of like buy back these objects that were kind of like, um, you know, taken in kind of like dodgy ways by the same auction houses, you know, just a generation ago. And, and so it's like, to decolonize um, and gain access to these objects, you still have to kind of like be subject to these infrastructures that, you know, both economic and both educational um, or, or uh, I guess, um, government-wise with museums. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's like, it's not as if like you can be apart from it. Like you, you really have to find subtle ways to actually engage it and and pull it apart and, you know, take time and effort and a lot of work. It's a lot about um, kind of re-engaging people with objects because I feel like obviously colonisation is an ongoing structure that we navigate every day um, and I think it's interesting to me that your, your mum or your family told you a story about an object and then you go to a museum and then a story is told to you, but it's so separate from people. And I think what I find really interesting about your project is you're kind of re-engaging your own culture, but then you're also doing that for other people too. So you can learn about your own culture, but then also learn about, um, I guess, people and touch and kind of what it means to tell your own stories. And so it's interesting because I think like um, using a digital platform in order to do that, it's really exciting to me, but then also, I guess, inviting people to actually be able to access their own culture and their instruments is really important. So, yeah, it's such a great project. 
yeah, like it's, it's interesting how, you know, as, as people educated in, you know, the, you know, the, the Western system, um, we learn to kind of like respect and trust in kind of like museums more than our own parents and our own communities, um, which is really quite an insidious form of, I, I don't know, yeah. brainwashing. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it takes a lot of time and effort to kind of like um, reverse that and kind of learn to trust in your parents, learn to trust in kind of like your community and, and learn to build these bonds. And, and I, I guess... Um, digital or otherwise, like whatever strategy is available, um, we've just got to like try to connect with each other to kind of like reverse these, these forms of occupation that that are kind of like in our brain totally. and in our body. Um, and so we're talking here a little bit about repatriation and I think when we normally think about repatriation, we think of returning objects, at a museum returning an object to a community um, but in this case, we're kind of talking about a different type of repatriation, which is about touch, which you were talking about earlier, and also sound as well, and um, accessing uh, particular sounds that uh, are kind of are lost through post-war trade and um, colonisation. Victoria, I'm kind of interested from your point of view as a composer, what was that like kind of discovering the, the sounds of the, of the drum and, and that experience, that kind of textual experience of touching the drum as well for the first time? It's a really good question. <laughs> I think the first time uh, I, James brought the drum over to my house, I spent a long time just, and I think uh, for anyone who's interested, there'll be pictures of the drum up that you can see about those kind of stamped pictures that are on the top and the side of the drum. I spent a lot of time... <laughs> feeling around the texture of each of those kind of indentations of different animals and people and uh, natural elements because every movement in the drum will affect how it sounds. Uh, and it's really interesting bringing together my training as an archaeologist, which is something you're taught to revere the object and to be really careful about how you handle it and touch it. Um, but this object is in almost perfect condition. Uh, and then to convince myself <laughs> as a composer that it's okay to play the drum like a normal drum. So once I got over that little hurdle of it's okay to actually hit this instrument um, that I've been taught not to do for a very long time, it was actually really cool. So it was a more of a collective uh, experience of resounding the drum, both myself and James hitting it with various objects, and I had my own set of percussion mallets and James bought his own. And then it kind of grew into a network. So the first thing I did was record a couple of sounds so that we had a bank of knowing what could be possible with this drum. And in the early stages, we didn't realize how much we would rely on digital sampling to make part of this resounding project come to life. Uh, and then quite quickly, the group grew into us including three Australian, really young Australian percussionists to come and experiment with the drum because of their musical experience and expertise in percussion. So we had Selena Myatt and Adam Cooper Stanbury in Sydney come in and do a recording session about a month into the project. And they tried out for an hour playing the drum in various different ways, including, <laughs> including this is going to scare people, bending the metal in the middle of the drum to get different pitches out like you would in various other metal kind of drums, which is perfectly safe because the bronze is really thick and it could handle the pressure. <laughs> I can see fear in some of your eyes. <laughs> we bent a 3,000-year-old drum. <laughs> but out of that one recording session, I think we recorded 51 sounds. 
that the drum could make alone because we tried it with different textures, different ways of playing it. We even bowed the underside with a violin bow, which is a very contemporary 21st century technique with percussion. Um, So that was all about experimentation. And then we had to balance it with some research. And James, very fortunately, had a musicologist connection down at the University of Melbourne, uh, Twin Lei, who gave us all this archival footage about how some ethnic groups uh, who still remain in Vietnam and continue to play these drums played it. And they play the drums with this big metal rod to make the big calling sound that you can hear them across the valley. And so um, James, later on in the project, called some of the percussionists back and they did a recording with metal. And then we got another set of sounds. So it was kind of balancing some historical evidence as even though there's not very much, as much as we could with a lot of experimentation. And then it built up this huge bank of digital files and that allowed us to, for myself, to compose music around the electronics as well as knowing that I would have access to a physical instrument. And it allowed us to broaden our search. So as part of the project, we commissioned new music from a composer in Indonesia named Bagus Mazazupa and then a Vietnamese punk rock experimental band. And the only way that was made possible was because James and I had amassed this bank of uh, sounds. So they could experiment with the drums in a much more international community way because they couldn't have access to the physical objects. So we kind of balanced working as locally as we could with these Australian young musicians and composers to have physical access, but allowing both the band in Vietnam and the composer in Indonesia, as well as anyone who really wanted to in the international community to have open access to the files that we recorded. So we might jump to listening to an excerpt of a piece of music that you composed, Victoria. Can you introduce this track before we play it? Sure. Uh, So this is one of the soundscapes that I worked on for the project. It's made entirely out of the stems or the sound recordings that I mentioned earlier. And it's called Nuk Soidat, which means water and land. interested in talking about I guess the link between museums and I guess like a more contemporary art gallery context and also FCAC a more community context and how you kind of see your work changing or adapting for those spaces yeah because I do feel like this project is as you said the first kind of physical iteration so I think it would be cool to talk about that more like what you kind of hope your artwork will do at FCAC and where you think the project 
is leading or heading? Yeah, like I, I guess like what's really exciting is FCAC is allowing us to kind of like have a physical manifestation of um, what we have developed with um, Lead Festival, which was primarily kind of like a digital experience at the height of kind of like Melbourne's second lockdown. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I guess like going on from what Victoria was saying before, like the significance of existing outside of museums gives us so much capacity to experiment and kind of like consolidate, find and really build knowledge, both cultural, but also kind of like um, archaeological and and technological kind of like knowledge around these instruments. Like um, I guess when museums hold and preserve these instruments in a glass cabinet, like they're, not, they're just not only locking up um, the instrument from us being able to touch or to kind of like work with it. Like um, it's preventing us from kind of like building up knowledge outside of what the museum, um, you know, prescribes is what this instrument means. Like the capacity to kind of like bend metal, you know, to really push the instrument. That's, that's what musicians do, right? Like, <clears throat> um, for people making music and, and listening to music and for artists especially, we want to always push these instruments. We want to, like, you know, learn about them by, you know, like, you know, um, taking on these, these risky activities. <clears throat> and risk is always a really essential... Uh, I Like, we always think that risk is always this essential kind of, like, um, strategy for maintaining culture and to create knowledge and, and to <clears throat> build up on kind of like, I don't know, um, new forms of art making, right? Like without risk, like what, what is it? It's just a thing in a glass box, right? Like, um, and, and so the, it is really important for us to have these um, kind of like non-museum or extra-museum forms of engagement with um different peers who will challenge us and who, who will kind of like question us, uh, even, even on how, how we're approaching these things. Um, Dora? I'm trying to figure out how to do a good segue between what James just said. <laughs> well, essentially. <laughs> but our first, well, the Bleed Festival thing was almost entirely digital, um, which means it took away one of the most important components of the work, which was to allow the public to have physical access to the object, which we are in some ways now able to do um, at Footscray, which is amazing. Um, the reason why we wanted that was uh, a physical access to the object, either to touch it or to learn in a live space right in front of them how the sound is made or what kind of sound it has to offer, was because we kind of wanted to make the work to a degree open access. And we could do that through releasing to the international public all those sound files that we recorded so they could make their own music with it and make their own sounds and experiment with it on their own. But we lost the ability to do that with the physical object directly with the community, which now we can do, which is incredible. Um, because I think, I think I've learned this from both studying art and also during all these series of lockdowns is even when you look at an object online, yeah, you can have access to it through Google Arts and culture, but you have no 
idea about your bodily connection with an object because it's not with you in the physical space. And now we get to do that at this exhibition where people get to interact with a drum relief or the drum itself in, in physical form um, and maybe even have, I'm not sure if it's possible right now, but have some sort of tactile experience with the object um, if it's safe, of course. Um, I pretty much think our idea of smashing the glass through acquiring the object itself was so that we could essentially try out this slight different version of repatriation instead of being able to give a physical object back to our geographical homeland because we can't with our community so fragmented across the world as well as the archaeological or historical reality is that those ancient borderlines or borders that this object may have existed to no longer exist in our contemporary world. We wanted to do it through music, both through people being commissioned to write new music for this, realizing that this ancient object has still a voice that it has to offer, both in the contemporary space. Yes, we can relegate it to the history and museum model of conservation where every object gets that little square where it can only function in one space, in one time, in one place. And maybe they do record a series of maybe, honestly, probably five sounds from this object, but it has way more to offer as a living artifact and as a musical instrument in our spaces for our communities now. Yeah, like, um, yeah, going back to that idea of repatriation, right? Like, um, you know, we, 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 we went into this project, you know, thinking about, you know, like really focus on that idea of repatriation. But, um, you know, that word is kind of like really linked to kind of like the physical object and the power and the control of the museum. And so, you know, like you have to work with the museum to kind of like to, to patronize these, these forms of knowledge making, whatever, and then they hand it back to you. And so it's kind of like it's always imminent on kind of like kind of like bending to the wheel of the museum. Whereas one term that we really stumbled from from kind of like um, academic knowledge in kind of like First Nations um, research is the term rematriation, where it's kind of like thinking as a form of seeding, where, you know, like it's, it's not enough just to return an object to a site and to a quote-unquote group of people. Like, rematriation is, is a seed that is kind of like um, allowed to germinate and form and express itself in um, many different unexpected and really significant ways. And so for us, um, these relationships that we're building and, and these ways to kind of try to reconnect and bring in the community, and not, not just the Vietnamese community, but also kind of like musicians from across the world and percussionists in Australia, like it is a form of feeding, you know, like we're embedding our culture into the brains and the hands and, and the ears of people. And, and so kind of like, it's actually, I, I guess, how, how we can colonize ourselves to, to kind of like find significance in these objects. Yeah, amazing. It's so important to change language too. Like I think we get used to using these words, like even my own mum won't let me say like decolonize. <laughs> She's like, no, it's colonization and there's no such thing as decolonization, you know? And so I think it's important to use really political language because what you're doing 
is, I guess, like inherently political, but for me, like storytelling. So you're, you're, and I, I quite like that word because I feel like it takes it away from a more, yeah, like I guess like the museum and institutions and the framing of objects and more kind of telling your own story but then passing on, I guess, seeds and, and the story for other people to tell. And, you know, it's oral and it's, and it's people-driven and I think that's really what we need, um, especially now in 2021. But also I think having digital access to so many people internationally is so exciting too. I think sometimes it's framed as like, um, you know, an alternative to a physical experience, but I kind of see them as interlinked. Um, yeah, so it's it's really exciting to think about like experiment, experimental ways you can kind of tell your own story with an object kind of as the seed or as the anchor. Yeah, it's really exciting to me. Like, I guess like both Victoria and I, even though we're, you know, academically trained or whatever, like mm. we're complete non-experts, like we're complete idiotic cultural novices, right? And and so kind of like it is really important to put put the physical objects but also the digital sounds out there so that other people can actually teach us. Yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, it, it, it's kind of like, you know, like we're playing this drum, like potentially, conceptually, whatever, really badly so that people can tell us how to be better. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious to know what what has the response of um, I guess the Vietnamese community been like to to this work? I mean, James, what was your mum's reaction when she experienced the work? Uh, again, it's this weird thing where you know, like you're not allowed to touch things. Like uh, I think um, there, there's always this fear that you have to be like a trained musician or mm. or a specialist to you know have the privilege of you know really reaching out to an object and so my mum's kind of like reaction to it was feel distant and and kind of like quite respectful of the drum um yeah and and i guess that's also an interesting way of kind of like interacting with it because it's kind of like more of of an act of sitting and listening and and watching others like engage with it and not having to yourself you know, be the person who has to actively touch and and engage with the drum. And so as a community, I think it's really important that we have all of these different ways of um, engaging with the drum and it or, and whatever way it is, like it's legitimate. Um, yeah. I think my mum may have had the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> When James brought it over, she was so excited. She spent like hours touching it. <laughs> and then she kept it on this special um, table for about the six months. I think we had it in our house. And she brought the entire street over to come and look at it one by one. <laughs> so she was so keen to share it with everyone because she couldn't fathom that we had this object that she'd only heard about or read about in books or in school when she was young, suddenly in our house. Um in terms of the Vietnamese community as a response, the only people I actually spoke to really closely or for long enough to gauge their experience was my extended family, which is about 40 or 50 people. So they're kind of their own their own community. <laughs> and they were kind of in the same mood as my mum, kind of shocked that somehow these two young Vietnamese second-generation immigrant punks had gotten <laughs> their hands on this 
enormous cultural object and we just had it in our house and we could play it and touch it. So there was initially that kind of shock that we were handling this object that clearly to such young, naive people were not prepared to do. Uh, but after that, they got firstly got used to it being in our physical family space and they slowly understood that the project was, as you mentioned before, Tamsin, about storytelling and they were, I think, really pleased that we were exploring Vietnamese history in this weird technological but totally respectful way that people could understand our own history and that it went beyond what, quite frankly, a lot of people hear about Vietnam, which is our history being dominated by a very modern history, so the Vietnam War or French imperialism. And we went way beyond that. We went so far back that our history and culture had this much longer history that perhaps a lot of people hadn't heard of before. And we told all these Vietnamese stories around the female women in our history and going back to very, very early um, Vietnamese creationist uh, mythology. And it was kind of a really cool way to use this one object to bring in all these stories about our culture, as well as engage with all this music making, which is another form of storytelling within our own community all the way geographically back in Southeast Asia. So it was this interesting way of talking to my family about something to them that was so close and them slowly being able to understand that we were capable of sharing it to people beyond our family and beyond the Vietnamese community. And I think uh, what I like about this work is that it is a bit like a drum, which that it keeps it keeps constantly sounding. Um, and, you know, there were, the work you know, was originally commissioned um, for Bleed Festival, commissioned by Arts House in, in Campbelltown Arts Centre, and then there's this kind of iteration that you were talking about online as well, where people are in, can can go online and, and create their own as well um, with the with the pre-recorded sound files and make essentially their own scores. Um, and then there's also um, the iteration at FCAC, and there'll be two iterations here at FCAC. I would love for the listeners to learn a little bit about what the experience of these two iterations of the work will be like at at, at FCAC. One uh, coming up super soon in January and then the other in May later this year. Yeah, can you talk us through what, what those different experiences will be like? Um, yeah, so like, you know, navigating the fact that we're so separate. Like what's really wonderful about, you know, our, our entire project is that we rely on the labour and work of so many people. <laughs> and Samson, who kind of like brought us in, has now been <laughs> like co-opted into the project to actually make art for us. <laughs> Which I'm so happy to do. <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, like it, it's, it's this thing where, you know, like we, we have complete trust in, in the people around us, you know, like for who, who both support us in, you know, like, like these, Kind of like institutional form to bring us in, but also we, we trust them in in their capacity as creators. You know, like we're all storytellers. You know, like we, we all have um, capacity to engage with 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 any object and and kind of like bring bring our own selves into the presence of these things. And so, what um, Townsend has so generously <laughs> agreed to is kind of like to make um, these. Um, aluminium like cast of the drum and so yeah my, my friend Kieran introduced me to to kind of like um what is it like aluminium foil lighting things 
Um, yeah, and and they're really amazing kind of like sculptural materials. And so um, what Tamsin's going to do is kind of like um, use this foil as an as kind of like a, a, a imprint um, around these drums and kind of like press into them and pull them apart. And, and there'll be kind of like these, these shell printed things <laughs> um, that, that will be like in, in, in the space. And it's really practical because, you know, like um, we don't need to worry about watching the drum like museums do and put the drum in another glass cabinet. We don't even need to have the drum there, but we do have the imprints of the drum like scattered throughout the, the space. And, and also we'll have like some of the videos that we've really cut from, from Bleed um, in, in interacting in the space as well. So we're hoping come come May um, we'll be able to present the artifact itself in the space and hopefully as well as perhaps like showcasing some of the films that we've done and the stories that we've told around the drum, but in a more interactive and communal setting. Uh, we were thinking about, hopefully, if this is possible and safe during that time, of course, that we would have a sort of workshop on instructional with a series or a series of groups of different people from the community who can come and view the drum itself and hopefully touch the drum and we would offer some videos about how to play it uh, as well as musical excerpts of other people who have very timely written music uh, using those stem sounds that we provided for them and showcasing this kind of slowly growing sound community that we've built around this drum. Wonderful. I think that might be all we have time for today. So, um, James, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful day there in Sydney. And Victoria, you must be exhausted. Uh, it being what, 10, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night there in London. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. yeah thanks for having us. <laughs> thank you for listening to FCAC Radio. Victoria, Pham and James Newen will be showing here at Footscray Community Arts Centre until the 22nd of February 2021. And then we'll be back here in May for Connect Part 2. And you can head to footscrayarts.com to learn more. And a big thank you to co-host and curator of Connect, Tamsin Hopkinson, and to guests Victoria Pham, James Newen. And a big thank you to FCAC staff who work behind the scenes of FCAC Radio, particularly Irvi Majumdar, Neil Kabatinan, Jess Ankumar, Vai Vijakuma, and Sherilyn Lynn, a big thank you to your amazing work for making FCAC Radio happen. Thanks for listening in to FCAC Radio, produced by Footscray Community Arts Centre and featuring artists from our upcoming program of events. FCAC is a not-for-profit, independently run community arts organisation that supports over 550 creatives annually. You can support FCAC by donating to the centre, hiring our venue, coming to our events, or sharing our content online. Follow at Footscray Arts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter or visit footscrayarts.com to explore and discover more. We appreciate your support and generosity.